Are we good to go? How's everybody doing today? Everybody doing well? I was just talking with um, Bob before the service. It has been a hot summer, hasn't it? This is weird. This is totally weird. I've been living in Michigan only for six years. Before that, I lived in Wisconsin. That's where I grew up with my family. Uh, my parents both grew up in the metro area. My mom in Roseville and my dad in Clinton Township. And then I moved here to go to the seminary from inner city, Detroit Baptist Seminary, where your pastor graduated from, and then um, moved here to be a part of inner city, the church also, and eventually met my wife and we got married. And we've been married for five years and we have two kids. We've got a two-year-old named Hudson and we have a two-month-old named Elliot. So we've been tired this summer, but it's been a good summer. A lot of things to learn and a lot of good ways to grow. So if you could go ahead and just pray with me for a second. We'll ask for God's help as we look at his word tonight and ask him to meet with us like he promised. Let's go ahead and pray together. Father, we do thank you so much for your kindness. We don't deserve your kindness at all. The only thing that I deserve from you is wrath because of my sin and wrongdoing and rebellion against you. And because you know everything, you know that better than anybody else. But instead of wrath, you have shown grace and mercy and unending love. You sent your sinless Son, the precious Lord Jesus, here to live a life of perfect righteousness, something that none of us could do. And even to take things a step further, he died as a substitute, a sacrifice in our place, taking your wrath against our sin. And you raised him up three days later. Death could not hold him. Because he had not sinned personally, he was sinless. He died in our place, taking our punishment. And because of his resurrection and his death for us, you have promised eternal life for anybody who repents of sin and trusts in him for forgiveness, that you will reconcile them to yourself, dealing with their sin problem, promising them eternal hope, restoration, a right relationship with the living God, the maker of heaven and earth. And right now, our Lord Jesus is alive. And for us, His people, He is interceding uh, before Your throne. He is helping us in our relationship with You. He is promising us grace and strength to handle the twists and turns of life in this broken world. You've filled our lives with hope and with joy and with peace because of all that You've done. So we thank You. And we beg You that as we come to Your eternal Word, that you recorded through your spirit for us that you would teach us tonight, that you would teach us, that we would hear from you, that you would shape and change our lives and make us what you want us to be. Uh, we thank you so much for the blood of Jesus. In his name, amen. So if you could open up to Titus chapter 2 with me, that would be super. Your pastor explained that you've been going through Titus on Wednesday nights. By the way, we've got a lot of Elworts in our church, too. We have his brother Josh and his family, his brother Scott and his family. Josh is actually a very close friend. He has helped me do a lot of work on my house, a ton of work on my house. They're just a sweet, sweet family, a great group of people. So he said that you guys have been going through Titus in your Wednesday night Bible studies. Um, and he said... Titus is the book of the Bible that we were doing as devotional material with our interns this summer, so we just finished doing that with them. 
And I kind of wanted to go to Titus chapter 2. He said he did it a ways back, but he said, why not do it again? You know, that could be helpful. At our church, on Tuesday nights during the summer, we have our midweek service on Tuesday nights, um, guest speakers come in, and we had two guys both preach Psalm 42 three weeks apart from each other. And both sermons were great, even though they were on the same passage. They were just really helpful to be reminded of. So we're going to give that a shot tonight. How does that sound? We're going to look at Titus 2, 11 through 14 together. And this is one of my favorite sections of Titus. And just, um, it was a joy to go through it with the interns of our church. So before we read uh, this passage, I wonder if you remember what it was like to be a kid growing up in your parents' home. Some of you are kids growing up in your parents' home, so this is probably not difficult for you to remember. But for the adults, I wonder if you remember growing up in your parents' home and not having to pay for things like toothpaste. Wasn't that nice? Wasn't it nice not to have to spend your money, maybe your allowance money, on just the, the menial, everyday things of life? Just think about how many meals your parents provided for you, all the utilities that you used as a child growing up in your home. Maybe your parents helped with your school bill. Uh, certainly they... They uh, worked out your education through elementary and through high school. And think of all that they did, and you never paid them a dime. It's really remarkable when you think about it. I have, like I said, i got a two-year-old and a two-month-old, so I'm on the front end of that. But as I do these things for my kids, I just think, wow, I had no idea. I come from a family of three kids. I had no idea what my parents did for us. It's amazing. And they did it just because they're kind. They never asked for anything in return. They never expected anything in return. We never gave them anything in return. They did it just because of their kindness. And that kindness, and this is probably the way it worked in your life, motivates us to listen to them and to obey them and to love them, doesn't it? Their kindness motivates us to listen to them and obey them. And the same thing is true about our relationship with God. That's what we're going to think about tonight. So let's read these verses together and we'll try and break them down bit by bit. Titus 2, 11 through 14. It says here, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So if you had to boil down this paragraph in one sentence, one big truth, this is what I think it would be. Very simple. God saves us to change us. That's, I think, all of what he's trying to say here. So if you could tuck that back in your mind and mull it over as we walk through the paragraph, this is what it means. God saves us to change us. So if you remember that in 20 minutes, you're doing great. Okay? Does that sound good? God saves us to change us. So let's walk through the meaning of the passage in just using a couple questions to guide us. So the first question is, what is it here that teaches us to say no to wrong things and yes to right things? That's our first question to answer. What in this passage teaches us to say 
no to bad things and yes to good things, no to wrong things and yes to right things. And the answer is in the very first part of verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. In other words, the grace of God that brings salvation is what teaches us to say no to wrong things and yes to right things. The grace of God is what teaches us to say no and yes, God's grace. So let's think about that term. What is God's grace? A very important word, right? A lot of churches are named Grace Baptist Church. The word grace is in a lot of songs. It's a really precious word for Christians. What is grace? Anybody want to volunteer a definition? Maybe a youngster. Any youngster want to give it a try? What is God's grace? What are you thinking there? Are you thinking about it? Hmm, she's thinking. Anybody want to volunteer? What do they say? <laughs> okay, you got to give me a definition. Unmerited favor, that's great. Or undeserved kindness, which is the same thing as unmerited favor. Uh, him giving us a gift that we don't deserve. That is His grace. And we completely don't deserve it. In fact, we deserve exactly the opposite. God's wrath, His terrifying anger against evil and wrongdoing. But instead, He has given us grace. And it says here that this grace brings salvation for everyone. So let's talk about salvation. Anybody want to offer a definition of salvation? Or give me a little background for understanding this word. Grace that brings salvation. Well, let's think about it this way. The word salvation implies that we're in danger and we need saving, right? The word salvation implies we need saving from something. And the backstory in the Bible on that is we are all sinners. And it's not just, not just sin like a slap on the wrist kind of a sin or a little white lie kind of a sin or, or like a parking ticket. You know, parking tickets are no big deal. You get a parking ticket, you go, ah, that's so annoying. But it doesn't go on your permanent record. You don't spend time in jail for it. It's a parking ticket. Everybody gets a couple of those every now and then in their life. But sin, yeah, sin is no minor issue for God. It is no small deal. It's a big deal. It is a heinous, awful, ugly, filthy thing for God. It's evil. It's wicked. And He's so perfect and pure and holy and right and true that He must deal with sin. He must violently react against sin. He has to punish sin and deal out the justice that sin deserves. And that's terrifying news for me because I'm a sinner. I've done all sorts of wrong things to violate God's Word and God's character. I'm a sinner, therefore I deserve God's wrath. So there's a group of people named Israel in the first half of the Bible and they meet God. As sinful people, they meet God. And this is their experience. And try and envision it because it really is terrifying. It says in Exodus 19, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings 
and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire and the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up and the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you yourself warned us saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up bringing Aaron with you but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord lest he break out against them. So Moses went down and told the people. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and they said to Moses, You speak to us and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of Him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So that really sounds like a terrifying experience, doesn't it? These people went to meet with God, their God, and he appeared to them in fire and in smoke and in thunder. And all of this was to help them understand that God is a holy, pure, perfect God. He never does anything wrong. He never wants anything wrong. There's nothing unjust or crooked or perverted in him. He's absolutely just and right and true, and he does the right thing in every situation. And that is so unlike us. We always do the wrong thing. And we've sinned against God in so many ways. And the reality that the Bible has for us is, from the day we're born, our hearts are evil, bent on doing evil things. We do evil things because we want to do evil things. And because of that, we're enemies of God. But what he did in his loving kindness to bring salvation, sorry if we kind of, you know, that's where we're driving at here. We're still defining the word salvation. What he did to bring salvation was he sent his sinless son to take on a human nature and identify with us. And his sinless son lived a life measuring up to all of God's righteous standards, something that we could never do. If we're going to be right with God, we need a perfect righteousness. And that is some, not something that I can conjure up on my own. I can't do it. I'm sinful. So he met that requirement for us. And then one step further, he died a death in our place as a sacrifice. Like the book of John calls him the Lamb of God. That you know this, this famous story that he spilled his blood on the cross for us. That he stood in our place, taking the wrath of God for us. When he died, God took his violent anger against evil and poured it out on his sinless son instead of us. And Jesus made a down payment to buy us back from the judgment we deserve from God. 
That is God's salvation. And God raised him from the dead, breaking the power of sin and death, promising forgiveness in life for anyone who trusts in his son Jesus for this salvation. So this is God's grace for us. This is something we do not deserve. It's a free gift. It's not something we put on layaway or we pay for or we earn with a good life. It is a free gift that he offers as a gift simply to be received by trust in Jesus alone, repentance and faith. This is God's grace that brings salvation available for all people. It's not just for one kind of people or people live over here or people live over there. It's available for anybody who turns from sin and trusts in Jesus alone. That's His free gift of grace that brings salvation. And that is what teaches us to say no to wrong things and yes to right things. So God's grace, His free gift, teaches us to say no to wrong things and yes to right things. That's the answer to our first question. Here's our second question. What does God's gift help us to say no to specifically? So it's God's grace that helps us say no. What are we saying no to? Let's look back at the verse here. Verse number 12. It says, His grace trains us or teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Those are the things we're saying no to, motivated by God's grace. So let's think about those words. First, ungodliness. It's probably pretty self-explanatory. You, you no doubt have the idea of it in your mind. This is one way you could think of it. And this is how a friend of mine describes it. Living like there is no God. Ungodliness living against God, ignoring what God wants and what God has to say. Living like there is no God, ungodliness. Not caring about His will, not caring about what matters to Him, and just doing your own thing. That's ungodliness. And this is what the grace of God teaches us to say no to. And the next thing, which has an overlapping meaning, is worldly passions. And, and we could think about worldly passions in this way. Wanting to do things that hurt and displease God. It has a very similar meaning to ungodliness. Uh, the book of 1 John would say something like, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. These are worldly passions. Wanting to do things that hurt and displease God. And the sad reality of being a Christian is we're still tempted by these desires that displease God. That when a person becomes a Christian, they don't become a perfect person. That's probably been your experience, right? That's definitely been my experience. That even as people who have been rescued by the Lord Jesus and given a new birth through God's Holy Spirit, we still fight these worldly passions. We still have them inside of us. That's the conflicting nature of the Christian life. Like Paul would talk about it. We've still got an old man and we, we got a new man. Being a Christian is complicated. We've got these old worldly passions that we deal with, temptations as we live in this sin-cursed world. We still have a sin nature and a tendency to sin and disobey God, even though the enslaving power of sin has been graciously broken by God in our lives through His Holy Spirit, making us a new man, giving us the new birth and new desires to love God 
and to love other people. So Paul says things like, put off the old man and put on the new man. And he says that because he knows that as Christians, we still battle these worldly desires, these desires to do things that displease God and to go against His will. So we got a, we got complex realities going on inside of us. So, so I think all that to say, don't be surprised when from your sinful heart you want to do things that hurt and displease God. Again, that's don't be surprised when you feel temptations cropping up in your heart, desires that tend towards, or desires that are worldly passions, wanting to do things that hurt and displease God. Because we're not sin-free. Can we all agree on that? We're not sin-free. We still face temptation in this world. That's the reality of it, that by God's grace, He has broken the slavery. We're not a slave of sin. We're not a captive of the devil, like uh, 2 Timothy talks about. We've been set free, and we actually have the ability by God's Spirit to love God and love other people, but we still face temptation. And we still have the God-given responsibility to say no to the temptation and yes to obedience to God and His truth. But don't be surprised when you are tempted. Be ready for it. Be ready to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Don't be surprised when you see in your heart, remember, God warns us the heart is deceitful and wicked. That Jesus also said in Mark chapter 7, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts and sexual immorality and arrogance and greed and slander and foolishness and pride. All of these evil things come from the inside out and they make a person unacceptable to God. So when you face a temptation and you feel yourself wanting to do something that displeases and hurts God, in other words, when you're tempted, don't be surprised like, well, where did that come from? I'm a Christian. I'm not supposed to want that stuff. Remember, the Bible says, you're a mixture of the old man and the new man. So don't be surprised. Instead, say no. Say no to the worldly passions and the ungodliness because of God's grace. Because of His gift He's given you of salvation. Motivated by His kindness and goodness, say no. So that's what we're saying no to. What are we saying yes to? What does God's gift help us say yes to? Let's look at that at the second part of verse 12. We are saying yes here to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So let's just walk through those things and talk about them a little bit. Starting with self-control. What is self-control? Oh, to have more self-control. Wouldn't that be wonderful? It's kind of a self-explanatory term, isn't it? So self-control is basically saying no to the bad desires of your heart. So remember, we just spent a few minutes talking about this. You are going to want bad things from your heart because that's what a sin nature is. Evil desires come out of our heart and we are not free of sin. That's another way of saying you are going to be tempted in this sin-cursed world. Jesus, uh, thank the Lord, has given us a new heart. Like we talked about, He's given us a new nature. 
He is changing us and growing us and shaping us into His image, teaching us to be more godly, teaching us to love God more and love other people more. But we still fight sinful desires. We still fight temptation. That's just the reality of it. And we're never going to be free of it until we're 100% a new creation in God's new world. And until then, we've got to fight. The Bible tells us to fight. And we need self-control. And God's grace teaches us to say yes to self-control. Self-control is saying no to your bad desires. When you're tempted, saying no. That's self-control, a very important quality. The next thing there is upright life. Self-controlled and an upright life. And we can think of that this way. Simply doing what Jesus told us to do. That is living in righteousness, an upright life, keeping His Word. Remember when Jesus told the story, He said, there's two guys. There's one guy who builds his house on a rock. And when the rains come and the floods rise and the storm beats on that house, the house stands firm. And there's another guy who foolishly builds his house on the sand. When the rains come, the floods rise and the storm beats on that house, it falls flat. And his experience of loss is great. And he said, these two people are like people, on the one hand, who hear my word and do it who hear my word and keep it, they're safe. They're like people who build their house on the rock, secure in God. But the people who hear me and ignore and reject are not safe. They will suffer great loss. So uprightness is simply doing what Jesus told us to do, following Him, loving God with all of our hearts, loving people like we want to be loved and treated ourselves. Uh, valuing the church, making God's people the center of your life, using your gift in the body, the church, to build other people up and help them mature in Christ, Uh, giving to the Lord, honoring our pastors and listening to our pastors and following them, functioning in our families like we should. For me, being the kind of husband that I should, self-sacrificially loving my wife, being the kind of father that I should, diligent, Uh, patient, attentive to my kids to teach them the truth of Jesus. That's an an upright life is simply doing what Jesus told us to do. And, And you know what that is for yourself. And then the last thing, a godly life, which is the opposite of ungodliness. In other words, living like God's opinion is the one that matters the most. A godly life, living like God's opinion is the one that matters the most. So, The grace of God teaches us to say no to the bad things, yes to the good things, and then at the end of the passage we find two reasons why. Why should we live this way? Why should we let the grace of God teach us to say no to the bad things and yes to the good things? And there are two answers at the end of the paragraph, two reasons. And the first reason is in verse 13. And it is simply this. Jesus is coming back. That's the first reason. That's the first reason why this should matter. Jesus is coming back. So it says here, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Now, maybe that sounds like a no-brainer. Well, yeah, obviously Jesus is coming back. Sometimes it doesn't always seem like Jesus is coming back, does it? It has been a long time, hasn't it? But we learn in the Bible that the time period is actually God's kindness so that more and more people can come to repentance and faith and enjoy the same salvation that we enjoy. And the reality of it is there is an expiration date on this world that Jesus is coming back as the Lord of every man. And when he comes back, like Philippians 2 says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And his control will be fully manifested over everything. He is going to rule as the King and the Lord over everything. And every single human being will recognize his authority and will say, Jesus is Lord. His control is going to be absolute. And in that time, in that day, he's going to do away with all ungodliness and worldly passions, with all sin and causes of sin in the world. And even with death, he's going to get rid of it all. So why on earth would I spend my energy, my time, and my life on things that are going to pass away when Jesus comes back? That's the whole point. That's pointless. That's a waste. That's stupidity. It's a foolish decision. It's a bad investment. Why would I, if Jesus is coming back to hold the whole world accountable, pump my life into things that will be judged by Him and removed? That would be a waste of time, wouldn't it? And everything else. So that's the reason. That's why you should be motivated to let the grace of God teach you to say no to the bad things and yes to the good things because Jesus is coming back. And on that day, He's going to deal with all of the ungodliness and the worldly passions and remove it from His good creation. So this teaches us to say no and to say yes. And here's the second reason. And the second reason is beautiful. Jesus recreated you. That's the second reason why you should say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and yes to a self-controlled and an upright and a godly life because Jesus recreated you. And I wonder if you think of your Christian life in these terms. Let's look at verse 14 together. It says, Who gave himself for us, that is on the cross, as you know, he spilled his blood for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness. In other words, to win us back, to get us back, to buy us back from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So what we see in this verse is Jesus did not die for you simply to give you a ticket to heaven so that at the end of your life you can enter to be with God. That is a part of what He did for you in salvation, but that is not the sum total of what He did for you in salvation. Jesus did not die just to get you or me into heaven and change our final destination. He died to make you a new person now. That before you knew Jesus, you lived in lawlessness, like this says. In other words, in other terms of the Bible, you were like a sheep going astray. You did your own thing. You did whatever you want to do. Like Ephesians 2 says, the gentleman in the back pointed out, that we live following the course of this world, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, following the sinful desires of our own hearts, going 100 miles an hour, opposite of God. 
doing our own thing, lawlessness. In other words, we didn't care about God's laws and His truth. We didn't care about what He had to say about how we should live our own lives. We did our own thing. But Jesus died, like this says, to redeem you from that, to buy you back from that lifestyle, and to purify you for Himself so that you would belong to Him and be zealous for good works. In other terms of the Bible, He died to give you a new birth. Before you were a Christian, you were dead in trespasses and sins. But when you turned and trusted in the Lord, God put His Holy Spirit in you and He made you alive. He pumped new spiritual life into you and changed your heart. Like Ephesians also talks about it, He raised you from the dead and seated you with Christ in the heavenly places, giving you every spiritual blessing in Him. He gave you a spiritual resurrection. So you're no longer a slave of evil, doing what everybody else in the world does away from God. You're a child of God, being taught to love and obey God and love and obey other people. And like Ephesians 2 also says, God has prepared good works for you that you would walk in them. That uh, from eternity past, when He decided to save you, He prepared in advance good works for you that you would fulfill them and walk in them and serve them. That's His main purpose for you. And in terms of this passage, uh, Jesus bought you back from lawlessness to make you someone who belongs to Him zealous for good works, to devote yourself to loving God and loving other people, to serving God and serving other people. So, the second reason is Jesus recreated you. He made you something new. And I wonder if that is amazingly hopeful for you today. Jesus made you a new creation. And someday He will bring that to completion with a physical resurrection and you'll live with Him in God's perfect world forever, worshiping Him. What an awesome reality. That is what His grace has done for us. So those are our two reasons why we should let the grace of God teach us to say no to the bad things and yes to the good things because Jesus is coming back and there's accountability and because Jesus made you a new person. It would be totally contradictory. It would be a contradiction in terms for you to claim to be a Christian, for us to claim to be Christians, and then give ourselves over to ungodliness and worldly passions. That'd be a, a completely contradictory thing to actually being a Christian, a new creation in Christ. So think about this with me. Maybe we can tie the strands together with a story. Sometimes stories speak better to our hearts than... than um, outright statements. So let's think about a story together, all the while remembering the main truth of this paragraph is God saves us to change us. Did you remember that? That's the main truth of this paragraph. God saves us to change us. So imagine we talked in the beginning about being a child growing up in your parents' home and not having to pay for anything. It was just a 100% gift of grace from your parents and the amazing reality that is and how that motivates you to love and obey your parents because they've been so kind to you. So imagine the story a little bit differently. Imagine that you're an orphan. Okay? Let's say you're a 12-year-old orphan. You're scruffy looking. 
you, you're wearing clothes that don't properly fit, you don't have a place to call home, you don't have meaning and purpose, you don't have protection and provision, you're an orphan and you're not cared for. Imagine one, one night, it's Christmas Eve, and you're walking down the street and you're cold, remember, you don't have clothes that fit properly, and you look into a warmly lit window and inside you see a fire in a fireplace, you see a family, you see a beautiful Christmas tree, kind of the quintessential picture, and you see a mom and dad with a little boy and a little girl around the Christmas tree and they're opening presents. And you think, boy, what would it be like to be a part of that family? And then you look behind them and you see a table and there's a feast on the table. A Christmas dinner unlike any other. You know, imagine what you like to eat. I don't know if you like turkey. Some, I don't really like turkey. Some people like turkey. Maybe there's a big golden bird there. Mashed potatoes, gravy, the works. You name it. And you think, boy, I'll just, I'll just sneak in the back. I'll, grab some, I'll try and grab some food, and I'll get out of there. So you do. Their back door is open. You walk in, but they catch you. And instead of kicking you back out on the street where you belong, they say, you know, why don't you stay with us tonight and enjoy this meal with us? You look like you could use it. So they sit you down at their table with their kids. They serve you up a big portion of that awesome meal. They even give you a gift from under their Christmas tree. They make you a part of the family. And as the night drones on, you're nervous and you're thinking, well, it's about time to go back into the cold and try and figure out my life. And they say, you know, why not just stay with us for the night? It's cold out there. You don't really seem like you have anywhere to go for the time being. So just stay for now. So you do. You stay that night and it's great. And actually, you stay every night from there on because they adopt you into their own family and they treat you as one of their own kids even though you didn't deserve that at all. I mean, you were trying to steal from them in the first place when they found you. They treat you like one of their own. Then imagine a year goes by. It's been a good year. It's a loving home. It's an incredibly wonderful situation. And suppose that you see the father of the family slip $20 into the junk drawer that he's going to come back for later, but you had something that you wanted to do, so you steal the 20 bucks. You steal that from him. How horrible is that? Why is that an awful, awful thing to do? You can tell me. It's a sick thing to do. Why is it awful? Right, because it's stealing, but even more than that. It's awful because it's stealing. God says we shouldn't steal. But it's even worse for other reasons. What do you think? Okay, all you had to do is ask, right? They gave you everything else. They would have given you the 20 bucks. They've given you everything, right? They treated you with loads and loads of undeserved kindness. You received immeasurable amounts of undeserved kindness, and you turn around and slap them in the face by stealing from them? And that's just what we do with God when we give ourselves to ungodliness and worldly passions. We have received literally infinite amounts of undeserved kindness. And when we choose to live in ungodliness 
and worldly passions, we slap Him in the face. We scorn His kindness. His grace that has brought salvation to us must teach us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and yes to a self-controlled and an upright and a godly life while we wait for Jesus to come back. How could we do anything else? Really, how could we do anything else in light of everything that He's done for us? So let's just go ahead and pray together and pray to God for the strength to say no and to say yes. Father, we thank You. We thank You so much for everything that You have done for us We truly deserve your wrath. It's a terrifying thing. If we saw you like the children of Israel saw you at Mount Sinai, we would be mortified. We would be terrified. You are absolutely just and holy and true and you know everything and you know all of the sin in our lives. And even so, you've shown us kindness and grace and mercy and love. You punished your sinless son in our place. And like this passage says, He redeemed us from lawlessness to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good works. So please help us live that out. Please. Because of Your grace, teach us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and yes to self-controlled uprightness and godliness. That's what we need. Please use us to do those good works that You prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Please make us people who are pure for the possession of Jesus, for His glory because of all that He's done. Thank you so much for promising to meet with us when we gather together as a church in the name of Jesus. We beg you that you would change our lives, that you would change my life with this truth. In Jesus' name, amen.